Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My eyesight is very poor. I can't read, but I have audio books. And my eyesight might be dim, but my insight has improved. So I have things that I can't do. But boy, you know, when you're older, you really can get away with some things that you couldn't when you were younger. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. We are a culture obsessed with longevity, a concept which is so often narrowed down to two things, putting off dying and participating in extreme and often ludicrous attempts to not look your age. The podcast sphere is full of hacks and loud with experts who claim to have secrets that the rest of us are just not privy to. Me, I've always looked at longevity as a byproduct of living super well, in line with the flow of life and good values, which produces less friction to the body and the mind, and so you live longer. My guest today works to a similar mindset, and in many ways she was a founding proponent of it and is living proof of how it can play out when done right. I first came across Dr. Gladys McGarry, or Dr. Gladys as she's known, on Instagram. She'd done a call out for podcasts she should go on to to chat through her latest book, The Well-Lived Life. I DM'd her suggesting we should chat. She replied, let's do it. And so here we are. I won't go through Dr. Gladys's full bio. It is literally five times as long as most because, well, she's 102 and she's worked for 80 plus years. Indeed, she's still working today as a medical consultant from Scottsdale, Arizona. Okay, so she initially trained in conventional medicine during World War II after growing up in India, but she soon expanded her thinking into alternative healing therapies and she became the first physician ever to use acupuncture in the US. She went on to found the American Holistic Medical Association in 1978 and is referred to as the mother of the alternative medical movement. Dr. Gladys was also co-founder of the Academy of Parapsychology and Medicine and the founder of the International Academy of Clinical Hypnosis. And in and between all of this, she had six kids. She also lived with dyslexia her entire life and almost died twice from cancer. Oh, and at 70, her husband of 46 years left her for the nurse attendant in the clinic they owned together. At 86, she went to Afghanistan to work in a war zone. She says she found her voice at 94 At 100, she did her first TED Talk and set out to write this latest book. 
So in this book, she's distilled all the wisdoms that she's gleaned from living 102 years on this planet into six principles for living life like you really mean it. Number six is the one that I really like. It's this, spend your energy wildly, even if you're 102. And we'll get into that in a moment. I had a feeling this would be a fun interview, and it was. I should preface our chat, though, with a few things. Dr. Gladys lives in Arizona, where on the day that we recorded, they were experienced their 26th day in a row with temperatures over 43 degrees Celsius. We also had internet issues, and I'm not sure if that's related. And so I was hearing things a good two to three seconds later, uh, which created a bit of confusion. And Dr. Gladys asked me to speak slowly and pointed out that she actually can't see too well. So she wasn't able to read my, my cues as we spoke. With this combination of conditions, an interview sometimes has to go in a slightly different direction. So you'll see that I had to set up questions in big kind of chunks and then allow for Dr. Gladys to just go for it, which... She does, and wonderfully so. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr Gladys, thank you so much for joining all of us here. Can you just tell me you're wearing the most beautiful outfit and your hair is piled up on your head in a, in a sort of a, a plait. I think I've got this right. You haven't cut your hair since you were about 40? Oh, I don't know. It's about 50 years, but... <laughs> Something like that. No, I've worn it in long braid for years and years and years. So so it's worked for me. It's a good look. I like it. So look, the world is currently obsessed with longevity. We've got all kinds of tech people in this realm and podcasters, you know, needing to know how to live longer. I mean, I think they're just petrified of death and delaying the inevitable. But I'm wondering if we could cover off some of the questions that I know you get asked very, very often and in a rapid fire kind of way to talk through your lifestyle, because you must be doing something right to have lived to 102. So tell me, do you drink or smoke? Have you ever drunk or smoked? Oh, I think I smoked a cigarette once. Okay. <laughs> you know, no, I don't. I don't. Okay. And water. What about drinking water? I think you have talked about this a little bit. Yeah, we're in Arizona. Anybody that doesn't drink a lot of water is very silly. Fair enough. What about sugar? Is sugar something that you indulge in or is it a treat? I don't avoid it. But, you know, food is food for me. What I can deal with is just normal kind of food. I don't like a lot of sweets, but I do like some cake now and then and I do like some chocolate. I, I don't d drink sodas or, or those things. They never interested me. Uh, but water, mm. yeah. A cup of coffee, one cup of coffee every morning is very nice to have. I might have a second one if we're going, going to, out for breakfast with somebody. But basically, it's a cup of coffee and it's a good thing for me. And, you know, it's I like to have salads for lunch, but I don't always have salad for lunch. I have raisin bran and, and prunes for breakfast pretty much always. And then for dinner, mostly soups or something of that kind, you know, what's Go available ahead. and whatever my son can fix for me for that time. And <laughs> That sounds extremely moderate and sensible and not particularly sort of, you know, restrictive in any way. What about exercise? Is exercise something that you've always got involved in? I know that you still ride a, a bike or a tricycle around where you live there in, in Arizona. 
It's too hot right now. It's just on my porches right now. It's 114 outside. But I do walk with my walker every day. And I try to get in and pretty much make it 3,800 steps a day. I don't always make it, but I try to. My bedroom is on the second floor. I built this house thinking about if I was older and needed to be going up the steps, this would be a good thing. And it's been a really good thing. So I climb the steps up and down, up and down as I need to. But I hang on to the rail as I climb up, you know. My eyesight is very poor. I can't read, but I have audio books. And my eyesight might be dim, but my insight has improved. So, you know, they're they're trade-offs. I like that attitude very much. I think we're going to get into a little bit of that in a moment. But the Blue Zones Project, which is part of National Geographic, they've put together a list of various techniques, commonalities amongst people where they live the longest, places where they've got the most number of centenarians. And I'm sure you're aware of this research, but one of the things that they talk about is that these cultures in these Blue Zones tend to adhere to a day of rest, a Sabbath of some sort. Is that something that you take part in? Do you take rest seriously? Oh, definitely. I take a nap in the afternoon. I mean, it's part of my routine. I have my lunch and then I take a nap and it's a one or two hour nap. My mother did the same thing. It's something that has been a family thing. And the, the British did that when I was a kid so, too. So too. And the Indian people understand that. The one or two hour nap in the middle of the day is like what you should do. (laughs) It's the shoulds. It's especially in in hot weather. I think it's a real hot weather thing. The Mediterranean countries um, do this. And I think it's just because it's the hottest part of the day. And often you have to stay up late to make up for the work you couldn't get done because it was so hot during the day. But it's nice to hear that you do that. I think it can probably give a few people out there a bit of permission to rest when and if they can, especially if they're working from home. It's a little bit more possible these days. Let me just add something to that. I've had people who, when I told them to go home and rest because of something that was going on within them, they have taken it for going home and resting, and that means for them, stop doing everything. They don't understand that to go and get a rest is doing something. (laughs) You know, it isn't stopping life. Your life isn't done. You don't just go lie down. If you're going home and you're going to take a rest, that's the thing that you're going to do. It's not stopping it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think rest like you're going to, like you mean it, you know, don't do it because you're kind of collapsing in a heap and giving up. Rest because it's purposeful and you're doing it for a specific reason. And that's to keep moving forward, to keep moving your energy forward. And I, I know we're going to get to that in a moment, but one of the other factors that the Blue Zones talks about as a factor for ensuring longevity, the best chances at longevity, is having a purpose, a a meaningful life. And I know you referred to that in your book as having juice. And I was wondering if you can explain to listeners what you mean by that, like how you access the juice in your life. And I suppose you found meaning via your career with your work as a doctor, originally as a conventional doctor during World War II. How did you access the juice in your life? Well, I totally understand that the juice that I'm talking about is energy. 
And so the energy that I have, that I'm working with, that I ask my patients to work with, is what I call the physician within that person. When I'm I'm working with a patient, I access and contact the healing aspect of that person that actually does the healing. Because I can present a patient with my ideas and my what I understand about what's going on with them and ask them to do certain things. But unless they accept it and do it, it just doesn't amount to anything. Do I have time for a story? Go for it. My eldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. He's now farmland and stuff, but he's building boats. But when he had finished his training as an orthopedic surgeon, he came through town, through Phoenix, and he was going down to Del Rio, Texas to start his practice. And he said, Mom, I'm real scared. He said, I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. He said, I don't know if I can handle that. And I said, well, Carl, if you think you have their lives in your hands, you have a right to be scared. But if you can understand that your job is to do good orthopedics in a loving manner so that the patient can accept what you're doing as best they can, and then you become colleagues in the whole healing process. It's not something that you can actually make a patient do. Sometimes when you try to make somebody do something, their shackles come up and they won't do it. But if you can reach that aspect of their loving self of themselves so that they can actually understand what it is that you're telling them to do, you have a whole different picture. And that's what you mean by juice? Yes. Yeah, got it. It's being able to contact that life essence, that life energy within each other, whether it's a patient, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a child, who it is, is that ongoing reality that love is the great healer and that's what connects. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's a great lesson to give your son. Now, of course, you've put this book together that brings together a lot of your thoughts and you've distilled the wisdoms that you've collated over the years into six principles for living a full life. And I like that emphasis on a full life. And I'm I'm going to focus on two that really struck me, that sung, that sung to me when I was reading your book. The first is is wonderful and it speaks to me in a very particular way. You know a little bit about my life and how I've lived it in, in a lot of movement. But yeah, one of the principles that you talk about is that all life needs to move. And you talk about often, you know, people feel stuck in their lives. And you say this, we may feel stuck in our life, but the life in us disagrees with that because it's moving, life is moving. So we put our attention on whatever motion we can find and let it pull us back into the life that's there waiting for us. That's such a wonderful way of putting it, that life is always in motion. It's always moving. So we've just got to find another little thread of movement within us. We might feel stuck in our career. We might feel stuck because we've got no energy. Our hormones are playing up or we're exhausted because the kids kept us awake. But there's always something moving. Can you talk us through a little bit of what you mean and how it's applied to you in your life? You know, again, it's energy has to move. Life energy has to move. If you don't move it, it dies. It gets stuck and it dies. 
the important thing, I think, is for a person not to be looking for something that's going to make them shut the life force down. I call it reaching for their true humanity. Within us is the true human, which is reaching like E.T. for going home. It's, it's the, the essence of our higher self, the inner self, call it what you will. Can I expand on that now? Please. I'd love you to expand on it, particularly because I'd love to know what you mean by kind of finding emotion, finding any emotion that you can. How can we, I guess, latch on to another form of movement that we might feel within ourselves or that we might feel in the life around us, in nature, whatever it might be in others? How do we use that to become unstuck in our lives? First of all, we have to decide that's what we need to do. Because if we want to be stuck, we can be stuck and nobody can unstuck us. You know, it's, it's just the way it is. A few years ago, I had this friend who had been a lifetime friend with our family and so on. And then he moved into dementia. And so he really didn't know much of who we were or what was going on. And he was in a lovely home where it was taken care of and everything. But I finally decided that he needed something to take care of. And so I gave him a little plant and I put it in his window. And I said, now, James, you need to take care of this plant. It needs water. You need to take care of it. And somehow he said, yeah, yeah, he didn't know what I was talking about. But I came back a week later and he met me at the door and he says, there's magic in this room. There's magic in this room. And I said, what, what? He said, look, see this box? And he went over to the air conditioner. And he says, if I push this button, the, the room gets hot. My plant doesn't like that. He said, but I can push this button and it gets cool. And the plant likes that. You know, I had known him a long time. I tried to reach him many ways, different ways, where I could recall some of the memories that we had together and so on. But that little plant is what did it. In other words, I needed to give him something that was alive, that he had care of. You know, the whole idea that he was the person that took care of that plant made all the difference in the world. All of a sudden, maybe it wasn't a big thing, but to me, it was huge. It was absolutely delightful. Yeah, I, I love that way that you use ways of tapping into the life force that exists within us and around us to find energy and get us back on track. It's something that you say in your book, we ask not how to live a life, but instead how to turn toward the life that's within us. And, and you say that that's really the secret to wellness and to living a full life. You also talk about listening to your body and a lot of people listening to this will understand what I mean when I say, you know, that just sounds like words to a lot of people. It's really hard to tap into that idea of listening to your body. But again, if you can do that, you can then tap into a movement, into, into a life force, an energy, a juice that's happening without us even being aware of it. And one of the tricks that you talked about, and I, I, it struck me as so perfectly simple, is stretching the value of simple stretching. Can you talk us through how stretching in whatever form it might take 
you know, yoga or just moving around on the floor can get us tapping into this idea of, of life needing to move and joining, joining that movement. When you pay attention to what your body is trying to tell you and you find a part of your body, maybe your hip, and you don't know quite what's wrong, ask it what it's trying to tell you and then lie down and stretch around until you find what it is that, that is the message from that aspect of your body. But it's the reality of what it is that we are doing that is creating that, that our body is trying to tell us. I had a patient came into the office a while back. She was complaining of shoulder pain. I mean, she was having terrible shoulder pain. And so we talked about this and we talked about that. And I did some activity on her shoulder and so on. And by the time she was ready to leave, I wasn't really happy with where we had gone. So I asked her to come back. But when she started to leave, she reached down and picked up her purse. And it was a huge, heavy purse that she carried on that shoulder. And I said, now, wait a minute, come back and sit down. Let's look at this situation again. What your shoulder is telling you, do something about this purse. It's too heavy. You know, it's that kind of direct connection if you begin to look at it. Yeah, it's a reframing of pain as something that's a hindrance, that gets in the way, it shouldn't be there. We rail against it. But really, pain is there to tell us something. That's all it's trying to do. It's not trying to punish us. It's really just trying to get us to shift to a better way. And you know what? All of conventional medicine is geared towards getting rid of diseases and pain. And I'm not wanting to get rid of pain. I want to get rid of the concept that pain is an enemy. Pain is somebody that is one of my teachers, one of your teachers. It helps us to understand our bodies. If we couldn't feel what was going on in our bodies, we really wouldn't understand half of what's going on in the world. I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And uh, it's something that I do often with my work. A lot of my work is about reframing things that we see as problematic, that our culture has stigmatized and digging beneath a few layers to go, no, hang on, what's it here for? Everything exists for a purpose. It's not just there to inconvenience us or to, to wreak havoc. So but I would love to move on to the second principle that I really loved. It's the sixth of the six principles in your book, and it's spend your energy wildly, even if you're 102. And I love that. I mean, this podcast is called Wild. I worked to a very similar mantra, and it's one that I've really, Dr. Gladys, I've only arrived at quite recently. I have a chronic illness, an autoimmune disease, which keeps me in check and gives me lots of lessons. I'm also getting older. I'm at an age where, you know, things start to, to go a little bit wrong. And with both so-called ailments, I'm told often to conserve energy. I'm told to pull back, slow down, put on the brakes, Sarah. All of my life I've been told this because I've had this particular illness from a, from a young age. 
And it's really not sat with me. And I'll tell you why. I had this conversation with a friend of mine just last night. He's 72. And I was talking about how putting on the brakes takes more energy than letting rip. You know what I mean? All of our energy goes into denying, grating against something that's bigger than us. Because as you say, life wants to move. Life is all about movement. And when we try to stop that flow, that energetic flow, it exhausts us. So that's something that I've had to work out. I've had to do a full circle in my own healing to work this out. And you've written along these lines, you've said, holding back doesn't work because life doesn't hold back. In fact, the second we start holding back from life, life will start holding back from us. And then we're not living. And you add this. So the question really is, how can I give to life in a way that encourages it to give back to me? Can you explain this a little bit more and what you mean by spending your energy wildly? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Don't be afraid of your energy. You know, people who have what they consider poor energy, a lot of times are really afraid of their energy because they they don't understand it. They don't know what it is and, and so on. I have a, a, a friend and a patient who I'm telling you, her body is so fragile she just got out of Mayo Hospital, and all of her doctors were saying, you've got to stop doing all the stuff that you're doing. And she finally basically told them that was not going to work. She's told them time and time again. But finally, she just plain left and went home and started, kept on doing the things that she's doing and has asked them to help her with the pain that her body is doing, I mean, she hasn't rejected them, but she has reclaimed what it is within her, which has kept her alive all this time. And here she is, this fragile little person. You would never think that she does anything much because she looks like if you blew real hard, she'd fall over. Not this woman. I mean, if you blew real hard, she'd puff right back up, you know. It's it's that kind of inner energy and strength that she's not going to stop doing what she's doing. And that's what's kept her alive. 
It's very much a choice from the way you write about it. You choose to let rip. You choose to be somewhat wild in the face of, you know, messages from traditional medicine saying that you should be doing this, should be doing that, and also from from many of our taboos, particularly for women. This was the context of the discussion I was having with my 72-year-old male friend last night. He was talking about how he's never stalled. He's never felt that in his creative career, he's a philosopher, he's not had to second guess himself. And I said, well, as as a woman, you do. You have to curb your wildness. You have to curb your energy. And I think one of the wonderful things, Dr. Gladys, about getting older as a woman, as your hormones drop off in menopause, you don't care about those rules any longer. And you do have this rejuvenated energy, even though the hormones are making you exhausted. There's this different kind of energy that comes through that goes, game on, let's just go for it. And I don't know if you can see this here. I'm wearing a brooch that says, yes, you've probably seen it back to front there, but it's kind of become my motto. And really it's been the last year as I approach 50 that I'm like, oh, you know, I'm halfway through my life. I I plan on living as long as as you have. So it's like game on. I'm not going to sit around waiting for permission. I'm going to find the energy where I can. Yeah, I, I just, I haven't the patience to hold back. Those rules and mores just make so little sense. It actually brings us to something that I found quite beautiful. The way that you talked about your divorce and you, it was, it's not a beautiful moment. You describe it in fact, as one of your impossible moments. And I'll get you to describe the circumstances in a moment because you write about it in your book, but you say that it then led to you finally finding your real voice in your nineties. Can you talk through how the divorce came about and how it then led to you finding your true voice? Well, you know, when I got in, into school, I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I I mean, add or anything. I was so severely dyslexic. I had to repeat first grade twice. And the teacher called me the class dummy. Well, that was a deep scar within me. So that even when I was understanding things and I knew I was right and I would really push for it, I would question it. I'd write a book and I'd have my husband, Bill, go through it and make sure that I didn't make any mistakes. I'd do a lecture and someone would come up and thank me for something that I'd said. And I, I would deflect it to somebody else, you know, thank you very much, but so-and-so said such and such. I didn't realize that while I was doing that, in reality, I was denying what I had just said. But I think I was so deeply wounded with this dyslexia thing that I really had not accepted my own voice. And yet I had accepted it, but I hadn't, you know, the in and out and all. So when I was 96 or something like that. (laughs) I have to laugh when you say when I was 96 or something like that, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I have worked a lot with my dreams and they've been so helpful. I I say I I have a Dr. Gladys and a Gladys and we have discussions and Dr. Gladys often catches Gladys and takes her around a little bit and, you know, so it's that kind of a, a reality. But the dreams are a big thing. So I woke up this morning and I knew it was a Sunday morning and I was singing and laughing 
and I was in a dream and out of a dream. You know, you can be both places for a while to, until you really wake up. But in that dream, I saw myself as nine-year-old Gladys in the jungles of North India, and I'm pulling the tent flat back, looking around, making sure my brother isn't out there because he was going to, if he saw me doing what I was going to do, which I knew I was going to do, he'd tattle on me and I'd be in trouble. And so I ran as fast as I could up the tree, up to the top. And I'm sitting in the tree and I'm singing because in our family, the thing was, we weren't allowed to sing anything but hymns or bhajans on Sundays. And so I thought it was a stupid rule and I really wasn't going to really bend my neck to that that far, but I was going to. So I'm sitting up in the tree and I figured nobody can hear me up here and I'm singing the caterpillar song or any stupid thing that I could come up with and just having a ball. But every so often I get to th thinking, you know, maybe you better check. Yeah. And I look over my shoulder and Jesus is up in the tree with me. And he's laughing and he's laughing. And I look at him and I say, Jesus, Jesus loves the little children, right? And he's laughing and he says, yes. And so I go back to my singing. And then after a while, I think, did he really say that was okay? So I look back on my shoulder and I say, I'm still a little children, right? And he, now he's really cracking up. And he says, yes, you're still a little children. And that's when I woke up. And that's when I woke up and thought, Jesus just told you you can use your voice for crying out loud. Start claiming the things that you said. And this book that finally I've written this, has the essence of my voice. But it's taken me all this time to be able to really put it into words because, you know, when we get that kind of a damage to our very inner core, the part of us that we think is so important, it can cause a lot of things to happen. I mean, you have a chronic illness that has done the same thing for you, but look at who you are and what you've done with it. It's that ability to to go ahead with what's there. And the fascinating thing was when we started the American Holistic Medical Association, we were sitting around a table of, and there were 10 of us around this table. And of the 10 of us, six of us were severely dyslexic. So we got to looking at each other and saying, that's why we're looking for something that's different because somehow, I learned to read and write and do figures and so on. I don't know how I did it. I still don't know how I learned to read. But we learned. And we got through medical school. And we've been teaching other people and so on and so on. You know, these were the leaders in the just beginning of the whole concept in our country. Yeah, I find all of this really interesting. I know you write in your book how this sort of this dream and this moment in your 90s came about off the back of a very long grieving process from the divorce that I think happened when you were just about to turn 70. You'd been married for 46 years. You'd had six children together. You'd run a business together. And you, you learned that 
you know, your then husband Bill had been walking around with divorce papers in his suitcase for, for six months. He then, I think, sent, you know, the divorce announcement to all of your children, your family and work colleagues before he even came to you with it, which I can't imagine how devastating that would be. But yes, I understand that there was this this grieving that took you a very long time. And I'd love you to talk about that process because I think so many people feel that grief or, or getting over something, a knockback, should take, you know, X amount of days, weeks, months. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it can take 26 years. Yes. Time is it's special for each person and their own particular time of grieving. And I was so involved with what I was doing as far as my life was concerned and so on, that I was perfectly happy. And I didn't pay attention to stuff that people were saying and so on. I just shoved it off and said, oh, they, they don't know what they're talking about. But when I, I finally had to accept the reality of it, I was absolutely shattered. We had started the American Holistic Medical Association together. We started the Academy of Parapsychology and Medicine together, you know, on and on. And and the kids that we had are just wonderful. And I mean, for me, life was just the way it was supposed to be. And now it was all gone. So this, this one time after, I, I think it was after I got his wedding invitation to his nurse and, you know. So this is, by the way, just so listeners have some context here, this was only a couple of weeks after he filed the divorce papers. He then sent you an invite to his wedding in the marriage to the nurse that had been working in your surgery. Yeah, all these years, yes. So I'm riding home to my empty home by myself in my car And I'm screaming. I mean, I'm letting God know what I think about this whole situation and how come it ever happened. And I don't know what else, but I I really, it was, it was an ugly, ugly scene because I had a full hour to get from the office to, to home. And I was going home to an empty home, not an empty home. I had my son's dog. So I at least had that. And, but I'm, really screaming at the top of my lungs. And then all of a sudden I pulled over to the side of the road and I stopped my car and I thought, this is horrible. You know, what am I going to do with... And I'm just rethinking what I had just gone through. And the words came to me, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Be glad, I thought. Your name is Gladys, so take that. And I went home and I changed my license plate to be glad. And the rest of the time I drove around Phoenix, other people were able to see be glad as it went through the streets and so on. So it was a turning point where I reclaimed who I was. And as I began to really understand what had just happened, I realized that I was reclaiming my voice there because I had always been, well, the way we addressed things, Bill and Gladys McGarry, you know, it was, I was always and Gladys. And I, and I saw myself as that. 
And now I had no, I had to do it differently. Then my daughter, who had just started her practice with me, we started our own practice and we, the Scottsdale Holistic Medical Group, and we were able to, to work that. So it released the, my dependence on being a wife and whatever that I always had thought was the proper thing to do as a wife. And I thought I was doing a good job. You know, I mean, all that stuff. And said, now step up to the plate and do what you need to do. And so that from then on, I was able to write some more books and so on. And actually, this book is the essence of that. Mm, yeah, that's a wonderful story. I get the impression you've quite enjoyed getting older. Would that be right? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I do. <laughs> you know, so I have things that I can't do. But boy, you know, when you're older, you really can get away with some things that you couldn't when you were younger. <laughs> Do you still work to a 10-year plan? I know that, you know, I think a couple of years ago you said that you've got a 10-year plan that you you do, yeah? Uh I envision a village for living medicine, a place on earth, and it could be any place on earth, and it could be more, should be more than one place on earth, where life itself is put into context so that it's healing for the earth itself and for the people that step on it. In other words, when they step onto the property of a village for living medicine, their healing starts because the reason for having it is for Mother Earth to help heal the things that that have been done to her so that we, we have an environment of healing for Mother Earth, but also for everybody who comes there. And it's not just a healing of or a getting rid of the disease or pain. It's an actual reclaiming our true humanity and moving into that as we move into mm. the Village for Living Medicine. That's a really great thing to have on your, on your bucket list. I have one final, very, very related question. I'm wondering how you feel about where the world is at today. You were born just as the First World War was coming to an end. You then practiced medicine or you, you know, studied medicine during World War II. You've witnessed the Cold War. You've witnessed all kinds of human atrocities over the years and, and beauty, of course, as well. But I'm wondering how you feel about where humanity has wound up in your 102 years of witnessing it doing its thing. I feel it's not well. I don't feel we've arrived at the best possible place where we're attuned and in congruence with, with the flow of life and the rest of the universe. But I'm wondering what you make of it all. I think we're on our way, you know. I have a flashlight in my hand and I'm walking up this path so I can see as far as the flashlight lets me see. But every so often there's a little flicker of light over here maybe or over there. But if I add my flashlight to that, lights up their whole light and the other. So I think if we can see ourselves as beings of light, which I think we are, and as we use our juice, our energy, for the actual healing of Mother Earth and healing for for ourselves, certainly, and reach it out then to whatever presents itself 
to us as something that could use our light. And in that way, bring more of the real juice into the whole field of medicine, into the way in which we think about medicine, the, think we, the way we think about healing, and understand that love is the center of the real healing process. And if we can flip into that deep understanding of love your neighbor as yourself sort of thing, it's, it really transforms pain. It transforms things that happen in your life and allows you to reach for the light, which is what I think our inner essence is really doing. I think we have that urge and in many ways I think what we need to be doing is falling in love again with humanity. I think we've fallen out of love with ourselves and yeah, I think it's a coming back to to that flow again, that energy, that movement, that juice, as you say. Dr Gladys, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for sitting Thank down you. to do this conversation when I think you're on day 26 of a continuous heat wave. So it's very much appreciated. All right, thank you. As I sat down to chat to Dr. Gladys, I realised that some of the most popular wild episodes have been with women who are well into their 80s, 90s and, well, hundreds. Julia Cameron is an example uh, who wrote The Artist's Way. Um, It was a very generous conversation. My chat with Sister Helen Prejean, the nun who wrote Dead Man Walking, if you've read the book or or seen the movie. Um, Susan Sarandon plays her in the movie. It's about Sister Prejean's own life counselling men on death row. And it's possibly the most energised conversation I think I've ever had. And then, of course, there was the episode with Margaret Atwood, who's 83, and, well, it was a wildly radical conversation. I encourage you to listen to these episodes um, if you like, um, and I'll put the links in the show notes. In all cases, um, these elders, I found, espouse the virtues of getting older and, as they get older, wilder which I think is really cool. Anyway, um, there's much to be gleaned from elders, particularly older women, I think, who seem to come into their own as they they hit their their 60s, 70s and 80s and they come into a new type of energy. And I I guess I'm drawn to interviewing these kinds of women because um, it's an energy that I, I really feed on. But to the chat with Dr Gladys, I've been left, I suppose, very energised by two principles, the two principles that we talk through in the conversation. The first is this idea of finding movement always. Life needs to move, as she says. It's what it does. You're stuck or de-energized. Well, you then go and find some kind of energy or movement wherever you can and you hitch a ride on it. It might be about tending to a pot plant or stretching your body and feeling the blood flow on those days when you're feeling, I don't know, stuck in other ways. As she says, life doesn't want to be stuck. So, as she writes in a book, we put our attention on whatever motion we can find and let it pull us back into the life that's there waiting for us. It's a great way to think about these things. And um, I've been applying it, actually, since I first kind of came across her work. Elsewhere in her book, she writes that life reaches for more life. Uh, I like this as well. Life reaches for more life. The second principle, of course, that we cover off is this idea of spending your energy wildly. 
you know, don't put the brakes on because this goes against the way things just are and it consumes more energy than just going for it. As I say, this has been a big revelation for me in the management of my own illness, but also as I get older and I enter my menopausal years, and it comes up on many of the Substack threads and in various requests for, for you know, on ask me anything reach outs that I do over there on Substack. So I imagine some of you listening will also have thoughts around all of this. And if you want to chime in on this, head to my Substack to share your thinking and comments. And of course, I'll put that link in the show notes along with everything else from this episode. As always, I've enjoyed having this conversation with you in a loose kind of way. Do feel free to share this episode around with your friends. Please rate it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to this podcast. It helps me secure guests like Dr. Gladys and and others. And um, yeah, please also put a review if you have the time and you're so inclined. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'll speak to you next week. 